Thanks, Catherine. Um, I'd like to, to thank you and the Center for the History of Medicine for inviting me um, to share my research, my very preliminary research, um, and also thank the Fulbright Commission and Geraldine Meany at the Humanities Institute for sponsoring this research and hosting me this year. Um, as Catherine was saying, I came to Ireland on a Fulbright, my sabbatical year, to uh, do this sort of big comparative project on reproduction and motherhood in late 20th century Ireland. Um, and I decided I wanted to do a chapter on abortion because... I knew from the historiography that not much was done on abortion before 1967 when it was uh, decriminalized in Great Britain. And then I started getting into the National Archives in Dublin and the Prony in Belfast and discovered a whole bunch of stuff on abortion. So this, I think, actually, I'm still doing that reproduction project, but I'm thinking that this abortion stuff needs to be a monograph of its own because there's a lot here. <laughs> um, so I'm kind of I've been consumed with this stuff. Um, so I'll start with something that I think you all have heard of, which is um, the case of Savita Halapanavar, who died in a Galway hospital in October 2012 after medical staff there reportedly refused to give her an abortion. Um, this is only the most recent controversy surrounding reproduction that has exposed deep ruptures in modern Irish society. Indeed, I would argue that some of Ireland's most divisive scandals in the past century from the famous murder trial of Mamie Cadden in the 1950s. You all know Mamie Cadden? I'll talk about her a little bit today, um, to the symphysiotomy controversy of recent years. Uh, these controversies have centered on women's bodies, reproduction, and motherhood, signifying the importance of women and gender to dialogues about morality, purity, and the Irish nation itself. No issue has caused as much scandal, debate, and controversy as abortion, which Tom Hesketh once called the second partitioning of Ireland. And... Um, again, I think the timing for this project is interesting, given what has been going on recently in Ireland, North and South. So these are some slides from autumn 2012. Um, at the top there is a so-called pro-life protest after the opening of the Marie Stopes Clinic in Belfast, the first abortion-providing clinic on the island of Ireland. Um, and then the bottom there is a Dublin protest after the Savita case, or a pro-choice protest. Um, so in this paper, I'm examining abortion in 20th century Ireland, focusing on an analysis of criminal trial cases from about 1900 to about 1970. To date, I've looked through most of the cases that exist at the National Archives in Dublin, and I just started exploring the Northern Irish cases. I'm only about, you know, 20% through those. Um, it looks like overall there are about 120 criminal trial cases on the whole island for the period I'm studying. Um, so today I'm sharing some of my preliminary findings, and I'd like to focus in particular today on a few things. One is the methods that women used in the process that they went through as they sought to end their pregnancies. And here I will argue that abortion cases shed light on female agency in an era that appeared on the surface to make that impossible. Determination and planning defined women's abortion attempts, testifying to their desire to control their fertility. I'll also talk a little bit in the second half of this paper um, today about communication networks, families, and communities contending that abortion efforts reveal evidence of close-knit families and communities whose members often banded together to help women obtain abortions. Before I unpack these claims in a little more detail, a little legal context and background information might be useful. Um, so I think... You all probably know this, but almost all of the cases that I'm looking at um, involve individuals who were prosecuted specifically for abortion offenses under the 1861 Offenses Against the Person Act from Great Britain. This, um, as you can see, or as you probably know, was a specific anti-abortion statute that criminalized not only the acts of a woman who sought abortion, but also those of anyone who helped her procure an abortion um, along the way. Uh, this did leave a little 
ambiguity, uh, <laughs> shockingly, in that um, it does specify that anyone who unlawfully administers poison or unlawfully uses instruments would be prosecuted, leaving a little bit of room for doctors to do so lawfully. It's hard to know how much that happened. Um, so most of the cases that I'm looking at are, are really abortion cases, but there are a few cases that masquerade as other things. Um, there are a few conspiracy cases, so conspiracy to commit abortion. Um, several cases involving charges of murder or manslaughter, and this, of course, is when the woman seeking abortion died. One case was classified as a suicide attempt when a pregnant woman drank Jay's fluid. Um, and I just found a case in the newspapers in Dublin in 1965 involving a woman who was charged not with abortion but with blackmail. So in this case, this is 1965, a 40-year-old housewife demanded 100 pounds from a Mrs. X, threatening to reveal that Mrs. X had had a backstreet abortion in 1940. So if she didn't pay up, she was going to expose the scandal. One of the things, of course, that complicates historical research on abortion is that we don't have any reliable statistics about the numbers of Irish women who actually obtained or even attempted to obtain illegal abortions up to 1967. In 1967, abortion was decriminalized in Britain, and it appears that by the early 1970s, most Irish women were traveling to Britain for abortion rather than resorting to illegal abortion at home. Abortion in early 20th century Ireland almost always went unnoticed, unless the women seeking abortion died or became ill. Abortion attempts could come to the authorities in a few different ways. First, if a woman received an illegal abortion and then hemorrhaged or became sick and needed either a doctor to come to the house or had to go into a hospital for care, the Garda uh, usually would be noticed in that process. Secondly, some doctors who had been approached by women seeking abortion and refused to help them notified the Garda of the women's intent. Thirdly, neighbors or relatives could inform on a woman seeking abortion. This, however, as far as I can tell, was quite rare in the Irish case. And again, it appears to have been far more common for family members and neighbors to attempt to hide abortions from the authorities. Lastly, an illegal abortion provider, once caught, could secure a lighter sentence by informing on other abortionists in the vicinity. And this actually happened in a series of sensational cases in Dublin in the 1940s. Um, in which an entire underground abortion network was pretty much dismantled um, when the Garda caught one abortionist and he informed another and he informed another. Um, overall, however, it's almost certain that the vast majority of abortions went undetected and unreported. While we can assume that the abortion rate may have been relatively high, and this I think is supported by the fact that several women who ended up in court accused of abortion um, admitted to having successfully gotten abortion several times um, before they were actually caught. But still, again, we have no way to access, to gain access to almost all the women who sought to end pregnancies. Given the difficulty of accessing historical abortion cases, it's not surprising that scholarly analyses of abortion in Irish history remain rare. While there are several works that focus on Irish women who have traveled to mainland Britain to get abortions, um, as well as the legal abortion controversies of the 1980s and 90s, there are to date no scholarly monographs on illegal abortion in Ireland itself and only a few articles that focus on abortion before the 1960s. Um, and the historian who's done, I think, the most to shed light on this issue is Sandra McAvoy, who's done some great work illuminating um, some of the issues that women went through um, within the particular legal, political, and social framework of the free state. So she limits herself to free state years. Scholarly investigations of women terminating pregnancies also remain scarce because illegal abortion is still at times perceived by historians as an unpalatable, dangerous, ethically disturbing, or even foolish family planning option. 
Some scholars have argued that abortions in the past were careless gambles that women took at the spur of the moment and thus not conducive to historical analysis. Others have assumed that the very real threat of illness or death would make only the most desperate of women seek to end their pregnancies. I argue against such views, however. My research thus far demonstrates that for Irish women, abortion was not something they took, something they took lightly. Although scholars have overlooked Irish abortion history, there is a place in popular culture for the Irish abortionist, and particularly Mamie Cadden. So Mamie Cadden um, was a nurse midwife in Dublin who was sentenced to death in 1956 after um, one of her clients, it turns out she was giving abortions as well, after one of her clients died following an illegal abortion. In addition to appearing in several television documentaries, I think most recently Scandal on RTE, um, and serving as a subject of a recent biography by Labor Party executive Ray Kavanaugh, Cadden has also been written about by authors of true crime books. Most of what has been written about Cadden is decidedly uncritical. <laughs> That's the only way I could think of to say that. <laughs> the depiction of Mamie Cadden in Irish popular culture reveals a fascination with her appearance and reported glamour. So Kavanaugh, who's written this biography of her, um, repeatedly talks about her, quote, massive dyed blonde hair, end quote, and flashy red sports car. Um, David Keeley, in his book on Irish female killers, entitles his chapter on Cadden, the blonde midwife from hell. Um, and there are a few, um, few of these works do attempt to make some serious arguments. So this biography um, written by Ray Kavanaugh is one of those, and he tries to depict Mamie Cadden as this one-dimensionally plucky feminist crusader intent only on helping women who is subject to a most unfortunate witch hunt at the hands of the puritanical Catholic state. On the other hand, you have someone like Dermot Farrader, who uh, wrote a little bit about Mamie Cadden in his book, Occasions of Sin, and he sort of categorized her, almost dismissed her as a, quote, incompetent abortionist presiding over botched operations, end quote. These examples focusing on Mamie Cadden, I think, are important, and I wanted to bring them up because they demonstrate the ways in which authors construct this image of abortionists as either heroes or villains, right? Um, in reality, of course, the lives of abortionists and their roles were far more complex and nuanced. Um, but I think it's important to note that these examples I've cited above also reveal that almost all of the focus on abortion in modern Ireland before 1967 has centered on the abortion practitioner and not on the woman seeking abortion. The lack of research on those women who actually experienced abortion makes sense, given the lack of reliable statistics and the assumption, I think until recently, that abortion was extremely rare in Ireland. Because of the secrecy surrounding abortion, women generally only spoke about their abortion experiences publicly when required to do so in court. Their narratives of abortion are therefore reluctant and coerced. Um, just to give you an example, there's one case in 1944 when a woman named Carrie was caused to t uh, called to testify in a trial against the man who helped her terminate her pregnancy, so he was the one on trial. Um, and she proved very reluctant to discuss her reproductive history and was even hostile in court. When the prosecutor asked Carrie, quote, as a result of your associations with this man, did you find yourself in any particular condition at the end of November 1944, end quote, Carrie said nothing. He was met with utter silence. He tried again, and he said, do you understand my question? And um, again was met with silence. At that point, the judge stepped in, inquiring if Carrie had any difficulty in describing her condition. Reluctantly, finally, Carrie replied that she had, quote, missed a period, end quote. 
After Carrie continued to resist several more attempts to question her, the judge actually dismissed from the courtroom all of the young men who are not vital to the case so that the female witness would feel less embarrassed about discussing her body and fertility. That didn't work, by the way. Um, as this case demonstrates, gaining access to women's honest words and thoughts through trial cases remains difficult. While Angus McLaren argues that, quote, the great value of legal documentation is that it contains rare accounts of women and men forced to talk of interactions that would normally have been cloaked in silence, hidden from history, end quote. Allison May reminds us that we must remember that these records were often created in extreme situations and cannot be taken to reflect all of women's experiences. Indeed, the potential pitfalls of using criminal court records to illuminate women's private and particularly sexual lives have been discussed in some detail by historians of both early modern and modern Europe. Nonetheless, I would argue, abortion trial records tell complex and complicated stories. And when read closely, they do indeed shed new light on women's reproductive experiences and particularly on their decision-making processes. So if we attempt to construct a picture of the so-called typical Irish woman who hoped to end her pregnancy, it's actually nearly impossible to do this. The reality is that women from all different walks of life attempted abortion. Helen O., who died in 1956 after receiving an abortion from Mamie Cadden, was a 34-year-old married mother of six. 20-year-old Irene A., in contrast, was an unmarried student who had a self-induced abortion in 1965. Margaret M., a 25-year-old single woman who lived in Dublin but received a surgical abortion in London, was having an affair with her married employer. In 1948, a woman who pled guilty to giving abortions to at least eight women in County Leash had amongst her clients a teenage girl still living with her parents and a married mother of two. The variety that these examples reveal suggests that abortion was widespread and practiced by women of different marital status, age, and region. In addition, the range of fees charged by abortionists in the 1940s from about two guineas in rural areas to reportedly up to 100 pounds in Dublin suggests that women of all social classes attempted to end their pregnancies. Still, there is one characteristic of the women who sought abortion that is striking. Almost half of the women who attempted abortion from 1900 to 1970 were married, and almost all of those women already had other children. 40-year-old wife and mother Wilhelmina, for example, sought an abortion in 1948 when she became pregnant with her sixth child. In 1942, a 28-year-old Tipperary woman who had been married for eight years died while attempting to put an end to her ninth pregnancy. That married women comprise a significant percentage of those women seeking a termination distinguishes abortion cases from infanticide cases in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. As the work of Elaine Farrell and Cleaner Radigan has shown, the vast majority of Irish women who were charged with committing infanticide, well over 80%, were single. And recently in Irish historiography, I think there's been um, a concerted effort to explore infanticide and to shed light on the lives of single women and unwed, unwed mothers um, in an age that stigmatized illegitimacy and in a society that failed to make adequate provisions for single pregnant women and their children. When studying female sexuality in 20th century Ireland, historians have focused really on single women. This also reflects the church's and the state's concerns at the time, of course, particularly in the 1920s and 30s, um, about what they constructed as the problem of unmarried women's sexuality. So Maria Luddy has written about the reports in the legislation, like the Kerrigan Report and the Report of the Committee on Evil Literature, um, which demonstrate fears about, quote, illegitimacy, unmarried mothers, the apparent spread of venereal diseases, prostitution, levels of sexual crime, deviancy, and the dangers of sociability, particularly in dance halls and the motor car, end quote. Whereas we are learning more about the realities faced by unwed mothers, 
the sexual and reproductive lives of married women remain largely a mystery. As Mary E. Daly reminds us, although Ireland boasted the highest marital fertility rates in Europe by the 1930s, we still know little about the reproductive lives of married Irish women. Abortion cases involving married women demonstrate that women and men made serious efforts to control their fertility within marriage. Um, and just as a little aside, I've been thinking about why married women... So I think there's this pattern developing in which matter, married women tend to seek abortion and single women tend to prefer infanticide. a little shaky because I'm not done with the research yet. Um, but it seems to me that the reasons for that are pretty clear. Single women, I think, had fewer options than married women. So most single women, many women, many of whom were in service, lacked not only the financial resources for an abortion, but also, in some cases, committed partners, access to abortion networks, which we'll talk a little bit about later, and um, I think, importantly, the time that abortion required. So seeking an abortion involved a carefully thought out plan, significant preparation, and again, time. In the case of a surgical abortion, usually at least two or three and as many as four or five visits to a practitioner were necessary. Um, and ending a pregnancy through abortion not only entailed several visits to abortion trials, but in most of the cases, um, previous attempts to induce miscarriage privately, um, and sometimes even travel across Ireland or abroad. So we have a few cases in which Irish women attempted to get an abortion in Ireland, in Dublin, and when that failed, they then traveled to London to terminate pregnancies. So what was this process of attempting to terminate a pregnancy like in early 20th century Ireland? When an Irish woman took steps to control her fertility, um, her sort of image of this backstreet surgical abortion was never her first choice, or almost never her first choice. Firstly, we suspect um, that several women who later did become pregnant um, had attempted to use contraception with their partners to prevent getting in trouble, which is what they would call it in the first place. Um, the Irish abortion trial records are very silent on the use of contraception. There's just one case in which it's mentioned explicitly, in which a, a man who's, um, who's a student at Trinity, he claimed that he had gotten contraceptives from a friend and that there was this network that went from Belfast to Trinity College Dublin supplying students with contraception. Um, so that's the one case in which it's really mentioned. Um, my, my suspicion is that they're using coitus interruptus and it's not really something you talk about or think of maybe even as contraception. Um, so if no contraception was used or if methods were tried and failed, what was the next step for a woman with an unintended pregnancy? In almost all of the cases that ended up in court, a self-induced miscarriage, sometimes alone and sometimes with the knowledge or support of relatives or friends, was attempted. Women acted to induce abortion through what are often called folk methods. You still see this a lot in the historiography, including physical harm and hot baths. Um, and we have a fair amount of evidence for this from uh, things like oral histories. So these are some oral histories from the North collected in the late 80s and early 1990s. And so um, this reveals that women thought that if they had baths or took gin, they could do away with the baby. Or if they could jump from a chair instead of stepping down, they would lose the baby. <clears throat> One woman reported that her mother had once tried to abort um, using a variety of methods, including eating washing soda. These methods certainly were not novel in the 20th century. In fact, evidence in folklore, in oral traditions that um, has been studied by Anne O'Connor reveal that external means such as beatings, vigorous physical exertions, jumping, um, running, carrying heavy loads, had been used for generations in Ireland. 
So this pattern is emerging in which women first seem to uh, try to take care of what they've referred to as their trouble themselves without seeking a quote-unquote professional abortionist. Um, and here is a case from 1950, um, a Dublin case, Sheila D., who uh, later was tried for... Um, a surgical abortion, but she said first she had tried several things, gin and hot baths, and then she said her um, lover told her to try very high jumps, that sometimes high jumps worked as well. By the way, those things tended not to work, high jumps and gin and hot baths. Um, so these physical harm methods, it's almost impossible to know, but we have plenty of evidence that they didn't work because women then took steps to do other things to terminate pregnancy. So again, there's this pattern. You have physical harm and folk methods, and when that doesn't work, women turn to drugs and poisons. Um, and again here, most women tried to induce miscarriage without um, quote-unquote professional help. They would swallow readily available items, including Epsom salts, um, disinfectives, letal, Jay's fluid, and laxatives. Women also attempted to gain access to what were known as traditional abortive fashions, including quinine, pennyroyal, and ergot. Usually, um, they would try to do this through chemists. So there's a fascinating project to be written on chemists and abortion, and we'll see if I get to that in my research. Um, and so what we see is that women would try um, physical harm methods, drugs, and then move on to surgical abortion if those didn't work. So in almost all the cases I've looked at, women are uh, making multiple attempts to induce miscarriage. In um, the case, the trial of Mamie Cadden, it came out that Helen O., who is the woman who died after Cadden tried to give her um, a surgical abortion, it came out that she had tried quinine tablets before going to Mamie Cadden. And similarly, in a 1937 case, a woman tried miscarriage by quinine, didn't work, and she went to uh, visit William Coleman, who was... Um, it's a very interesting case of an abortionist in Dublin in the 1940s. Has anyone heard of him, William Coleman? He was an electrician who decided to set up an illegal abortion practice and even bought an X-ray machine to um, help him out. Um, he's the one who brings down this whole network. When he's caught, he sort of tells it everyone else. Um, in 1932, a Donegal woman was brought up on charges after she attempted miscarriage by taking, quote, six pills, the nature of which is unknown, two Beecham's pills, and a bottle of castor oil. End quote. And this tells us that you know, women are also trying to sometimes combine different methods. Um, so this abortive fashion use has a long history in Ireland and elsewhere, of course. And there's plenty of evidence for the 19th century that suggests that it wasn't so uncommon in Ireland. There's a case from a Monaghan coroner's book in 1962 um, discussing the death of Rose, who was a domestic servant. And she consumed large amounts of savin, or juniper, to induce miscarriage and died. Um, and this is an interesting case because according to the coroner's remarks, Rose's sister admitted that Rose had taken drugs to end a pregnancy six years earlier and had been successful in that attempt. This tells us that the effectiveness of abortifacients abort and drugs remains difficult to ascertain and always were. It always was difficult to know how well they would work. Um, you know, these poisoning deaths of women who consumed too many abortifacients remind us that self-induced abortion was hardly a science. Yet again, because some women later did admit in court to previous successful abortions via drugs, we can guess that some abortifacients were effective. And some of the things that they're using, like ergot, um, is still used today for uterine contractions and to um, eject the placenta after birth. 
and pennyroyal, which is one of the things that they're using as well, is considered dangerous for pregnant women. It can induce miscarriage, even today. Um, I'm not talking too much about context here, but you know, it is important to note that in the 1930s, the Irish government, concerned with you know, all these um, horrible sexual offenses that it felt was going on, they sought out information about contraceptions, but also um, abortive fashion. So this is even after um, the 1935 Act that outlaws contraception. Um, in one criminal case, the Attorney General's Office, this is a criminal case from 1939, um, it wanted to know what these drugs were that women were using to induce miscarriage and how effective they were. So um, the Attorney General's Office um, asked the Department of Medical Jurisprudence here at UCD for a report on this. And this is part of the report here. This report claimed that um, ergot had a general effect in the body and then a special effect on the uterus, which it may induce to abort when given in large doses, and then admitted that the fatal dose is unknown and variable. Quinine, something else that was really um, popular, it said tends to paralyze the heart, producing a slow, weak pulse, and finally heart failure. And savin, or juniper oil, has no direct effect on the uterus, but abortion may be produced by the shock of its poisonous effects. What is clear in almost all of the medical reports at the time is that doctors themselves didn't quite know what the effects of most supposed abortion drugs may have been. Um, like women, they knew that a certain amount of drugs could be effective, but also could be deadly. And there's a lot going on with doctors in this. I'm not talking about them in this paper either, but um, they, they seem to be very, to um, depict themselves as very clueless about all these things going on. So when a woman is admitted to, you know, Hollis Street Hospital, suffering a miscarriage, they claim that they never, ever can tell when someone has induced miscarriage or when it's natural. So they kind of absolve themselves of responsibility. Um, so if you were a woman and you wanted to use some kind of drugs to abort a pregnancy, how would you know what to use? Well, what's really fascinating is that there are tons of advertisements in the late 19th and early 20th centuries um, for what are known as female pills. Um, you know, and this is despite the fact that um, these sorts of advertisements had been outlawed um, in Ireland. So we have... The Irish Times in the late 19th century, and this continued through the early 20th century, featuring advertisements of towels, pennyroyal pills. Um, and these advertisements actually would eventually become evidence in certain court trial cases. Anyone heard of Dr. Hooper's female pills? Mm -hmm. Yeah. They were created in Britain in 1743. Um, and it's interesting, I was looking through the Irish chemist and druggist, and Dr. Hooper's female pills are advertised every month in the Irish chemist and druggist in the late 1920s and 1930s. Um, a description of Dr. Hooper's female pills proclaimed them to be, quote, the best medicine ever discovered for young women when afflicted with what is commonly called the irregularities, end quote, meaning that they could serve to restore normal menstruation in cases of amenorrhea um, or the cessation of menstruation. And so pills that were designed to regulate menstruation were called amenagogues. Um, and they were very commonly known to, of course, induce miscarriage as well. Another example, this is my favorite, is Beecham's Pills. Um, a British product available in Ireland that features in several abortion trial cases. Um, Beecham's Pills were billed as a cure-all for almost everything you can think of, including wind and pain in the stomach. 
Um, but also, this is a little hard to read, but um, part of this says, quote, restoring females to complete health. They promptly remove any obstruction or irregularity of the system, end quote. Um, so there's an interesting dialogue going on here in which um, we're talking about regulating the menstru- menstrual cycle, and everybody sort of knows the implications of that. Um, so female pills contain a variety of substances. Some of them are completely useless. Um, Dr. Hooper's pills seem to have been completely useless. Um, but some amenagogues, including towels pills, which did contain pennyroyal, um, may have effectively induced miscarriage. It's difficult to know how much information Irish women actually gathered from advertisements like this, but again, because these were actually in the court trial records, we know that some women were using them. Um, I think it's you know far more likely that word of mouth is the main uh, way that women are finding out about these things. And there's actually, we have some evidence of this. So Angus McLaren is a historian who's worked on late 19th and early 20th century um, Britain in terms of abortion. And he's traced the use of um, lead plaster or diacalon to induce miscarriage. And so what he found is that in the 1890s um, in Sheffield, the water supply became contaminated with lead and people got lead poisoning. And what he discovered is that the local women discovered that those of them who had been pregnant coincidentally, happened to miscarry during this time. And he argues that what happened next is women tried the method to induce miscarriage deliberately, and it proved successful. So using lead plaster, it proved successful. Um, Then he traces how the practice spread by word of mouth from Sheffield throughout South Yorkshire and then across Britain in the early 20th century. And I was actually kind of astounded to come across a case in Belfast in 1916 when a woman was prosecuted for supplying lead plaster to another woman to assist her in aborting her fetus. So we know that um, this word of mouth came to Ireland as well. So when abortive fashions failed, what options were left for women who sought abortion? More invasive methods had to be attempted, of course, and here most women sought help, um, either from friends and family or from a, quote, professional abortionist. Um, The difference here was usually based on geography and class. So in rural areas, women asked a skillful family member or friend or local nurse, midwife, handywoman for help. And in urban areas, and particularly this was true in Dublin, um, people who billed themselves as professional abortionists had thriving practices um, for those women who could travel to them and who could afford the higher fees that Dublin-based abortionists charged More invasive abortion methods included syringing with soapy water and disinfectant or opening the womb with an instrument such as a crochet or knitting needle. These methods were more effective but also more dangerous than folk methods or abortion drugs. And we have um, several descriptions of these procedures in court depositions, and what's remarkable is that they all look pretty much the same. Um, In 1938, the top example there is from Susan M. in Belfast describing um, an Uh, attempted miscarriage, and she became seriously ill after this. She says, defendant made the water soapy and then took a syringe out of her pocket and filled it with warm soapy water. She put the syringe in my person, and I next felt pains like cramps in my abdomen. Um, And another example is Mary D. in Dublin, um, who is helped by Mrs. M. Mrs. M. inserted a needle into my private part. I saw the instrument in Mrs. M.'s hand. It was like a knitting needle. I was about five minutes on the bed, and I noticed that I started to bleed. It's important to note that Mary, like Susan, um, ends up ill and has to get professional medical help after this attempt. Despite the clear pain and horror, really, of these methods, many Irish women attempted abortion multiple times. Um, The trial of a County Leash um, abortionist 
had one woman who testified that she had successfully received two abortions from this woman, um, once for a pregnancy of about two months along and once for an advanced pregnancy of eight months. So one of the things that we discover in abortion cases is that the line between abortion and infanticide is very, very blurry indeed. Um, Other women admitted in court that they had previously attempted abortion, um, sometimes effectively and sometimes not. Um, And I think it's important to note that, you know, women for whom abortive fashions or physical harm methods were unsuccessful or who initially couldn't find any help or were turned away by doctors, they did not stop looking for someone to help them. Um, And we know that, again, a lot of women are trying different methods you know, one after the other, or simultaneously. So Sheila M., who we had before on the PowerPoint, trying um, gin and hot baths and high jumps, she used um, next quinine tablets. And then, when all those methods failed, she traveled to London for a surgical abortion. Um, I think these court depositions from Susan M. and Mary D. um, raise intriguing questions about the ways in which women and men talked about abortion, both inside and outside of court. So it's interesting because, you know, there's this dialogue amongst medical professionals, politicians, and religious leaders in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, especially denouncing abortion as criminal and unnatural. Um, But Irish women and their male partners use a completely different kind of language when talking about abortion. One man describing his initial meeting with Dublin abortionist William Coleman um, said that he had told Coleman, my fiancé has missed two periods. We're concerned that something is wrong. Um, So when women and their partners talk to each other, um, or to abortionists about terminating pregnancies, they often explain their problem, again, as one of stopped or blocked menstruation. And as I did so, they followed a centuries-long tradition of viewing abortion not as the murder of a fetus, but as restoring menstruation and thus bringing a woman back to health. Um, and historians working on abortion history in Britain and Germany have demonstrated similar popular attitudes in those places in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, and so it's interesting to, to sort of think about the different language that is used and whether this distinction in language between, you know, official and popular spheres is com- confirmation of, you know, the fact that we were talking about two distinct and different words, worlds here. Um, or instead, are we talking about a world in which women and men seeking abortion employ this deliberately coded language where they're talking about abortion without really talking about abortion? Um, I think it's also possible, and this does seem likely, that in private, Irish people um, are using direct language to speak about abortion, and then they filter that when they get into the courts. Um, And it's only sort of after um, being repeatedly encouraged to tell the truth that they um, come up with statements like this. Um, One thing that I've just started discovering is that there are sources that were produced outside of court that we can look at as well. And so there's actually a series of letters in some of these abortion trial cases that end up as evidence in the trial case. And so what happens is it seems as though, um, you know, it's not only word of mouth communications, but also communications through the post or sometimes messages that are hand delivered. Um, And so we have some examples of the type of language that was used when women describe their abortions outside of the courtroom and thus, you know, far away from official eyes. Um, So this particular uh, letter is a 1944 example of a woman, Carmel, who got an abortion. She was a single woman who um, had been seeing this man, Dennis, for a few weeks. They did not have a serious relationship. She got pregnant. Um, She 
asks him to help her arrange an illegal abortion. And this is one of the letters that she writes to him. Dear Dennis, as I have been feeling desperately ill all week, I have been wondering whether it would be possible to get the abortion, I'm sorry, the operation done next Sunday afternoon. I have had to knock off work three times this week, and of course there are questions being asked. I have been taking very strong doses of ergot, and this has left me very weak, as I was warned it would do. And standing for eight hours a day doesn't improve matters. Then she says, please don't think I'm complaining. After all, I haven't done so up to now. But frankly, I'm in dread of losing this job. Anyhow, I will keep the appointment on Sunday morning at 11 for an x-ray. I'll fall in with any suggestion you make. Carmel um, goes and gets a surgical abortion. And then she ends up in the Hollis Street Hospital as an emergency case. Um, So she writes another letter to Dennis a few months later. And in this one, she says... Dear Dennis, you will be relieved, I'm sure, to know that everything is successfully over with no apparent ill effects. I ended up as an emergency case in Hollis Street Hospital, exclamation point. These last four months have been like a horrible nightmare. I cannot tell you how relieved and happy I am to know that the worry and sickness is at an end. The operations were naturally painful and a terrific nervous strain. However, that was my side of it, and I would like to think I faced up to it as decently as you did to yours. Very many thanks for your help, Dennis. Good luck and good wishes, Carmel. Um, so she's very gracious here. And it's very interesting when she says, that was my side of it, and I would like to think I faced up to it. We see this in almost all the correspondence that women sort of see terminating a pregnancy as their responsibility. Um, you know, And the man, the partner in some cases, might have a financial responsibility to help her out, but she sort of sees that as her responsibility to get the abortion. Um, and there's another case, and this is the... The latest case I've found chronologically, it's from 1968 in Belfast. Um, and this is the case of a Belfast woman who's charged with manslaughter. Her name's Alice. And she's charged with manslaughter when she attempts to give an abortion to an acquaintance, and this woman dies, and the woman who dies is Margaret S. Um, so the woman who wanted an abortion, Margaret, had many children and was desperate not to bear another child at what she thought was the very advanced age of 40. Um, and so she knew this woman, Alice, who helped her out with certain things, like buying shoes for um, her children. Um, and so this woman, Alice, may have been a handy woman or maybe even a retired midwife. Um, and so Margaret contacts Alice through um, letters that she writes, and she has her 13-year-old daughter hand deliver to Alice. Um, and so in her first letter to Alice, Margaret, it's really interesting. She doesn't reference abortion directly. She uses this more veiled language. Um, so she says, I'm wondering when I can come up and see you as I am still the same and am worried sick. So obviously, Alice knows that she's pregnant. Um, I was going to come up today, but I didn't know if you would be in or not. Um, I am writing this so as Irene doesn't know anything. Irene is her other daughter. Um, and then she sort of says, oh, I owe you money for shoes that you got for me. Um, please write me back so I know when I could come up and you know, basically get this taken care of. Um, and so Margaret writes, keeps writing to Alice because it's, seems like they are not able to meet up, and her letters get a little bit more desperate. And so this is her third letter. Dear Alice, please try and make it down as soon as possible. So now Alice is going to go to Margaret, not the other way around. Things are bad. I am gone three months now, and I am getting desperate. I need your help. After all, you've already got some money for me, and I haven't very much at the moment, Margaret. So money has exchanged hands, and now Margaret is saying, I'm three months along. I'm absolutely desperate for this procedure. And again, um, unfortunately, she ends up dying. And Alice ends up um, going to trial significantly, and I don't have time to talk about this today, but almost all those people who were accused 
of abortion were found not guilty, um, especially in the North. And I'm not quite sure why this is, but even when there's direct evidence, like these letters, and Alice admits in court, yes, I did this, I'm so sorry, she's found not guilty. I'm not quite sure what to make of that. Maybe you can help me out with that. Um, so I think that sources like this are starting to paint a picture of the communication networks that women seeking abortion may have had access to. Um, and they also tell us that most Irish women who attempted abortions did not do so in isolation. Um, and again, this is maybe something that distinguishes abortion from infanticide. Court cases affirm that abortion attempts were discussed in families and communities, and that women often sought help, not only from partners, but also parents, relatives, and neighbors. So in one 1940 case, an 18-year-old woman, Nell, um, turned to her grandmother when she became pregnant. So she went to her grandmother and said, I'm in trouble. Nell's grandmother, in turn, told Nell's mother. It's an interesting way to tell your mother, right, through your grandmother. Um, Nell's mother finds out that um, Nell is in trouble, and Nell's mother's name was Mary. So Mary goes to her two best friends, her two female best friends, um, Margaret and Emily, and says, this is the situation. My 18-year-old single daughter is pregnant. She's about four months along at that point. And the three women, Mary, who's Nell's mother, and her two best friends, Margaret and Emily, um, they attempt an abortion on Nell by a soap and water syringe in Nell's home on her kitchen floor. Um, the procedure went horribly wrong, and Nell died. And as she lay dying, likely from an embolism, the, the women who attempted the abortion immediately sort of sought help from other people. So... Um, Nell's mother seeks help from her friends, and when things start to go wrong, those friends literally run down the street um, and knock on the door of a retired maternity nurse who lives two doors down. Um, and then their maternity nurse says, go get this other woman who lives five streets away. And then that other woman who's also a nurse comes, and then that woman says, get the doctor. The doctor comes, and the doctor says, call the guards. Um, and so that's usually how these cases were reported. So I think it's interesting, in this particular case, um, that when women called on familial and community networks for help when faced with an unwanted pregnancy, these networks were almost exclusively female. Um, and this is something I'm hoping to explore as I continue with this project. Um, you know, to what extent do abortion trial cases um, open a window into what we might call women's worlds? Um, and so far, I think it's, it's a very complicated picture. My research is suggesting that for most single women, um, if they are seeking abortion, they usually need the support of their male partners. So single women tend not to enter into these female traditional health networks. Um, so we see single women seeking help from partners, but married women tend to seek out the assistance of other women. There's also an urban-rural um, divide here. So in Dublin, again, a number of so-called professional abortionists are set up and they're, they're known. So many women tend to visit them instead of asking friends or neighbors to help. Um, outside of Dublin, however, women almost exclusively call on these local networks, and these are almost always comprised of other women. William de Blakehart, who has um, worked on abortion in the Netherlands, reminds us that the focus on speaking and acting individuals on abortion practices has hardly been applied in historical abortion studies. Yet read carefully, the available sources on abortion in 20th century Ireland shed light on women as speaking and acting individuals, as well as on the realities of abortion itself. So we know, again, that illegal abortion on Irish soil appears to have declined rapidly with the 1967 legislation of abortion, uh, legalization of abortion in the UK outside of Northern Ireland. Um, and this, combined with relatively easy and inexpensive travel methods, allowed Irish women to seek assistance in Britain. 
According to Maeve Ruin, who wrote in 2000, approximately 20 Irish women every day went to Britain seeking an abortion. Between 1980 and 2000, at least 80,000 Irish women had abortions in the UK. And of course, this is only the women who gave Irish addresses, so the number is higher. So again, there's been a fair amount of research on the numbers of Irish women who have um, attempted abortions since 1967. Um, and I think, although Irish abortion history and abortion history in general is often viewed as one with a history with many turning points and transformations, you know, abortive fashion use, backstreet abortion, travel to Britain, I would argue that for the women involved, the main narrative of abortion is one of continuity. After interviewing some Irish women who traveled to Britain for abortions in the 1980s, Ruin concludes, quote, women make informed moral judgments about abortion and take the consequences. Not one story in these heart-rending tales tells of a decision made lightly or without due thought, end quote. The same was true of those women who sought illegal abortions, whether self-induced or provided by an abortionist, from the 1920s through the 1960s. Um, this story of continuity or even coming full circle, I guess, um, I think becomes more interesting when we recognize that recently the availability of herbs and pills on the Internet has resulted into what we call a return to more, quote-unquote, traditional abortion practices. More and more Irish women are turning to abortive fashions and home-based self-induced abortions. In 2009, the Irish Medicines Board confiscated over 1,200 abortion pills that were bought online and imported into Ireland. Abortion rights organization Choice Ireland has argued that there is now what it calls an abortion pill black market in Ireland that is thriving during the economic crisis when it is more feasible for women to purchase pills than travel to Britain for a surgical abortion. Of course, one thing that may be changing is public opinion. In the wake of the tragic death of Savita Halepanavar, there's been overwhelming public support for legislation on the 1992X case. An Irish Times poll taken in February revealed that 84% of respondents believed it was time to legislate to permit abortion when the life of the mother is threatened in Ireland. These discussions and debates that we are having today about women, the body, and reproduction could be informed by more nuanced historical analyses of abortion. Even a cursory glance at available evidence proves that Ireland is a country with a deep and varied historical record of backstreet abortion. The secret journeys of women who travel abroad for a legal termination every day or who purchase drugs on the Internet are legacies of the past in a country that has proven reluctant until very recently to recognize the reality of abortion. Thank you.